Today we're going to talk about the auditory system, um, mostly how to test the integrity of the auditory system, and there will be some fun games. And uh, just, just, uh, just to do some housekeeping to get started, uh, these slides have been updated last evening. I sent out an email. I apologize for the lateness, but you know, I ju just thought you should get a better experience that way. And um, if you don't have them, just, just download them real quick right now. Uh, there was a gentleman who approached me who didn't find them. I just confirmed that they're, they are online, right? Yeah? Good. Um, so this is an, a lecture that has been traditionally been like divided in two lectures. Uh, it has been compressed, uh, which means a little bit of the material has been uh, put asynchronously, right? Um, so uh, I, I encourage you to do this before the exam at some point, um, especially this video here, I think. This is kind of more um, you know, uh, optional. This, this here is a, is a really nice animation that explains uh, the, the processes in the organ of Corti, um, and it, it's, it's very straightforward. And then, then a little bit of, this is kind of, takes you like two, three, four minutes, each of these, so go through those when you have time. And then, of course, our normal reading here, uh, the anatomy atlas and so on. So um, another thing is also we've talked in the last visual systems lecture about uh, age-related decline in vision that is kind of normal, uh, presbyopia. Uh, just a two-minute video here of what it is. Some people had some more questions, so I thought I'd post this video. They just understand what happens, what, is the, what are the, the factors that uh, cause people over the age of 40 to lo lose their vision, you know, what happens to the eyeball, and how can you correct it, and with what lens, okay? And then uh, to make up for everything, I created this little sheet sheet for you for somatosensory lesion localization that you can use to study. Uh, it basically goes through the different stages here of somatosensory processing, and it has all these examples there that might come in handy. Okay. Um, on another note, if you have any materials that are related to the sensory lectures that you either you found online or somewhere, or you paid for it, or something that has quizzes, animations, USMLE questions that you think are great that helped you, uh, please share them with me so that I can go through them and share them at times with other students. That would be great. Okay, so um, the auditory system, the stimulus is sound, uh, and we have mechanoreceptors in the ear that transduce the sound waves into uh, neural impulses. Um, the first thing is that just a bit of the physics of sound. So every sound is composed of many, many frequencies. So when you hear my voice, these are frequencies from about 100 hertz to 1,200 or 1,700, uh, 17,000 hertz uh, in there. So that's kind of the range of the human voice in production. We can hear about uh, 125 hertz uh, to about 12 kilohertz, 12,000 hertz. That's kind of what we, what we can hear. And the human speech, uh, human speech kind of stretches this whole, um, this whole spectrum. So it's a very complex stimulus. Now, but you can do uh, what engineers call a Fourier transform, like a spectral decomposition of the very complex sound waveform 
into its component sine waves. A sine wave is a wave that has always the same uh, uh, frequency. This is the uh, distance between, between the length, how long it takes to go from one peak to the next. Frequency is uh, calculated in hertz. That's like, uh, um, you know, kind of oscillations per, per second. Um, and then another factor that you have in here is amplitude. So that's the height of the waveform. Uh, we perceive that as loudness, volume, right? Different, different, different spectral power in a particular speak frequency band, which is this. Uh, the amplitude uh, is, re is related perceptually to increased loudness. Um, the frequency here, you can go from, uh, so this is 850 hertz, this is 850 hertz. The difference between the top and the middle is that this one sounds louder, right? Now, we, the, dis, dis, uh, the, di, uh, the distinction between the top and the lower one is that the lower one has a lower frequency. So, it, perceptually, a lower frequency creates a lower pitch. Let me play this here, but you know how a... Right, so that's a high pitch. This is a lower one. Right, and and that's that's related to the um, frequency. Okay, there you go. So um, now what happens is the the whole system is the sound is generated by some oscillating uh, thing in the environment, maybe my vocal cords or a uh, a, a speaker or a tuning fork or something like that and it moves the, the, the airwaves, they hit the, uh, the, the, the pinna, get funneled into the ear canal, and then uh, they are transduced into mechanical impulses and then into neural impulses. Um, we're gonna have a quick look here, how this works. Sound waves entering the ear travel through the external auditory canal before striking the eardrum and causing it to vibrate. The eardrum is connected to the malleus, one of three small bones of the middle ear. Also called the hammer, it transmits sound vibrations to the incus, which passes them to the stapes. The stapes pushes in and out against the structure called the oval window. This action is passed on to the cochlea, a fluid-filled snail-like structure that contains the organ of corti, the organ for hearing. It consists of tiny hair cells that line the cochlea. These cells translate vibrations into electrical impulses that are carried to the brain by sensory nerves. In this cut view, you can see the organ of corti with its four rows of hair cells. There is an inner row on the left and three outer rows on the right. Okay, that's enough for now. Um, so there's another video there that, that is from the same series that goes into much more detail for like five minutes or so. It's really worth watching because um, you kind of need to have an idea about what's going on there. Uh, but it gets into like nitty-gritty detail. Um, so basically the idea is that here sound moves, uh, sound waves 
uh, move the tympanic membrane. Uh, this moves the a chain of uh, of like little bones the, called the ossicles. Uh, that actually, up till there, we have basically air moves the tympanic membrane. Then we have mechanotransduction there through this ossicle chain. Um, then that moves the oval window. Uh, and then all of a sudden we go from this mechanical then again to, to fluid, right? Uh, and, um, and then uh, the hair cells are activated and cause the neuronal uh, firing, okay? So here again. Now, what's, what, what happens is when you move from uh, one medium to the next, there's always like some transduction loss. For example, if you go at Cranland's Beach and you jump into the water, right? You're in underwater with your ears submerged and your, friends, your friend calls you, hey, hey, really loud. You don't hear this so well, right? Because the, uh, the sound waves hit the water and then uh, have some resistance there. Now, if the sound waves would hit the, um, the uh, oval window at the entrance to the cochlea, uh, we would lose a lot of uh, energy there in that system. So what, what the ear does, it does a mechanical amplification of, of, the, um, of the sound, of the energy, uh, before it is transducted to the, um, to the oval window, right? So usually you would lose about like 98% of that energy, right? Um, and the, the, that's kind of the problem we face. But if you look, what is pressure? It's force over surface area. So the solution that is actually that the eye does is using a combination of it. It goes, uh, it, first of all, it has leverage. So these are levers here, and it uses leverage to uh, in, increase uh, the, the, the pressure. Uh, or the force, and then you also have a reduction in surface area that goes from the big, large surface area tympanic membrane to the small surface air area oval window, right? So these two uh, components, um, leverage and reduction of surface area, uh, allow the ossicular chain to maintain uh, about 67% of the original energy and transmit it. So there's this amplification going on that's, that's very important. Okay, so now we also have what's called a sound attenuation re reflex. That is, uh, if there's persistent loud noise in the background, like, like uh, a disco, right? Um, there, there, there are two muscles that, that can act to impair the or to, to reduce the, tr the, the transductive power of, or the mechanical leverage power of the, um, of the ossicular chain, right? So you have the activation of the tensor tympani, which is attached to the malleus, um, and then the uh, stapedius muscle, which is attached to the stapedius, uh, um, stapedius right? And um, these, when these constrict, they actually make this part more rigid so that there's actually a reduction in, in, in the mechanical force that, is, that goes through that. That makes sense. Now, what's, what's important here to, recon to consider, this works for long, prolonged stimulation because there's a delay. 
you have to know, the, the nervous system has to understand that there's a big sound first before it can actually contract these muscles. So if you have a loud gunshot, for example, right, right next to the ear, these muscles cannot act quickly enough, right? So there's a certain delay. So that's why the same noise that comes sudden can cause much more damage to the ear than the same level of volume noise if it, if it kind of builds up slowly and then stays for a while, right? Okay, so um, the ear is divided into like three basic compartments. You have the outer ear, the middle ear, and the inner ear, right? Um, the outer ear goes up to, to the tympanic membrane. Then you have the middle ear, uh, that is the ossicular chain. And then from there you have the, uh, uh, the inner ear. Um, so you, you can have um, different issues arising there that can affect how th this ear is performing, right? Uh, so the outer ear is, is, is really like this canal. Uh, when you go swimming, it gets water in it. Uh, sometimes this water doesn't evaporate all the time. If it is in the sea, you, you have a buildup of bacteria and so on. So, and it's a kind of a moist environment and, and that is really nice for like growth of all kinds, fungi and bacteria and so on. So you can have, through that, you can have outer ear infections that uh, are, you know, easily treated, but if they are not treated, they can actually uh, move into the uh, middle ear through, through the tympanic membrane and, and cause problems there. Um, so in the middle ear is, is, is also there, therefore um, susceptible to infections that enter through, through the auditory canal. Um, you know, then you have inflammation within the, uh, the inner ear uh, that builds up pressure, causes, uh, causes pressure on the tympanic membrane. Uh, the eustachian tube, which is connected to your, to your uh, you know, kind of your, your vocal apparatus, everything, um, you know, that you use for equalizing when you're on a plane or when you go diving. Uh, that, that swells up, closes up, and then you have this pressure that can build up there and, and cause all kinds of damage, uh, like tympanic membrane uh, rupture or so, or even if you leave it untreated longer, you uh, get uh, uh, things around the ossicles that limit their activation and so on, right? So um, antibiotics are really helpful here. Um, okay, let's go on. Auditory pathways, don't you love them? Um, so the, the good thing is, this looks really complicated, but you don't need to know them to the same degree uh, that uh, we kind of went through the, uh, the other pathways. So you just have to be aware uh, that there is the uh, eighth cranial nerve going into the cochlear nuclei, and then the names of the other ones that are around here, right, up to the auditory cortex. The reason you don't have to know them because they're clinically not that important um, because clinical, uh, any lesion there, because that pathway is so reciprocal and intertwined that a lesion at any one point uh, past the cochlear nuclei will actually not really result in significant clinical presentations of hearing symptoms, right? So, so here's another like, um, uh, 
auditory pathway description, uh, how it goes from, from the periphery to the central nervous system and to, to the uh, cerebral cortex. Just know that uh, there's a peripheral nervous system that goes up to the uh, auditory nerve and the spiral ganglion, and then up from the cochlear nuclei, you have the central nervous system. Now, why is this not so? Okay, so why is this not so important? Let's assume we have a lesion in the uh, right auditory cortex, right? Uh, a lesion in the right visual cortex would cause like uh, left visual field deficits, quite pronounced, right? So the auditory system is a little bit differently wired because of these extensive uh, reciprocal connections in the brainstem. So if you get a, uh, a right uh, cortical lesion, you still have input from the right ear can go to the uh, left auditory cortex, right? Now, if you have uh, um, input from the left ear with the right auditory cortex lesion, this information can also go to the, uh, to the left ear. So that means you have a whole auditory cortex there on the left side that process binaural from both ears the information. So you're not losing that much in, in, in clinical terms, right? So if you have a central lesion within the auditory system, you can still hear with both ears, right? That's, import that's an important uh, concept that, is, that differs very much from all the other sensory modalities that we discuss. Now, if you have uh, a lesion in the periphery, right, input from the right ear here, for example, uh, cannot go through. So no matter what happens, uh, you, uh, a lesion in the periphery, uh, you can only hear with one, one ear, monocular, uh, mon monoral, right? So even though from the left ear the input goes to both auditory cortexes, cortices, now you only hear with one ear. You're deaf on, in, on the other, right? So, so here's kind of a summary of this. So only lesions to the ear itself, to the sensory receptor organ, to the eighth cranial nucleus, and to the cochlear nuclei uh, can produce unilateral hearing loss. Uh, so, or maybe call that monaural hearing loss. So you can only hear with one ear. Damage to the auditory cortex, uh, patients can still hear with both ears, okay? Okay, so now it was pretty uneventful to go to the auditory cortex. Um, the auditory cortex is actually located here in the temporal lobe. This is the superior part of the temporal lobe. You see here, this, this sulcus is the sylvian fissure that goes here, right, that separates the temporal lobe from the frontal lobe and the parietal lobe. And then here, the top sulc as gyrus is the superior temporal gyrus. Uh, in there, if you dig in, you, you find the transfer uh, Heschel's gyrus, or the transfer temporal gyrus, which goes kind of from medially, a little bit anteriorly, and, and laterally, branches out. So this is this guy here, 
right? So this, this is called the primary auditory cortex, or A1. Uh, it is also called Heschel's gyrus, Brodmann areas 41 and 42, and transfer temporal gyrus, so just if anybody asks. Okay, so and you have one just like that on both sides of the brain. Both receive input from both ears. Now, what makes this, so, you know, we had this like uh, in the, in the um, somatosensory system, we had a particular organization uh, there that was somatotopy, right? Like that touching one part of the hand and then moving over a little bit and touching that part, they actually represented near each other uh, in terms of uh, spatial arrangements on the somatosensory cortex. In visual cortex, you have the same thing that visual fields are represented next to each other and there's a retinotopic mapping. Now, in the auditory system, what you have is a frequency mapping, uh, a tonotopic map. That means that frequencies, low frequencies, kind of activate neurons here and high frequencies activate neurons here. So, and, and then of course in between. So like this would be 100 hertz, 1,000 hertz, uh, 12,000 hertz, right? So where this comes from actually is, oh, here's another picture of that. You can see, so this is the anterior part, the caudal part, this is the anterior part, uh, this is the posterior part of the uh, auditory cortex, and then you go anterior, rostally, and you have the high frequencies. Oh, there's a mistake here. Uh, just correct this. Uh, exchange high frequencies with the low frequencies, please. Apologies. So, but what, what this does is actually, where does this come from? Why do we have all of a sudden this frequency code or this frequency uh, spatial arrangements there in the auditory cortex? Um, where, and that, where, which, how, how do, well, I'll tell you. So the, <laughs> the, the cochlea actually is the, is the organ that does a frequency decomposition. It does a Fourier transform uh, from uh, a, a complex uh, high frequency stimulus and, and decomposes it into its component frequencies. Uh, what this looks like is here, this is a very complicated waveform, like a sound. Uh, and you can see there, is, there are slow components, here now in blue, that are go up, down, up, down. And overlaid on that, there are a bunch of high-frequency components. This is a very simple schematic, but speech is like that and just more. Or every sound is like that, just, just more, more frequencies on, on there. Right? So this is kind of a a human speech waveform, and this is the frequency decomposition of this uh, word, right? So that you, you have like the uh, low frequencies up here, and, if, and, and you can see it, it, it ranges all from 300 hertz to 1,000 uh, uh, hertz up here. So in the, and how does the cochlea do that, right? So here you have the oval window. Uh, the ossicle chain moves this oval window like that, and then you have the basilar membrane here, and you have encoding of sound frequency on this, right? So it is narrow and stiff, 
at this part and wide and floppy over there. So that means that here, this, this part of the membrane deflects most to high frequencies, and the other uh, membrane deflects most oops, to low frequencies. So every frequency there from like 100 hertz to uh, 12,000 uh, hertz has, has kind of its favorite spot on that, uh, uh, on that membrane. And, um, and the membrane deflects more or less depending on what, what, what the frequency content is of, this, uh, of, this, of, of the particular sound stimulus that you're getting. Um, now on this membrane there are the, the hair cells, which are the kind of receptor cells that depolarize and then send uh, send a, a, neuron, a neuro, neuronal signal to the auditory cortex. So these, the, the, neuro, the hair cells here only code for the low frequencies, let's say 125 hertz, right? And, and that, actually, that inf neural information goes to the auditory cortex for the part that codes 125 hertz on the auditory cortex. On the other extreme, you know, for the high frequencies, like 10,000 hertz, you have a bunch of hair cells here that code for 10,004 hertz, and they go all the way to the auditory cortex, to the portion of the auditory cortex that uh, codes for 10,004 hertz, right? So you have a similar arrangement, a tonotopic organization in the, uh, from the cochlea to the um, auditory cortex. Now, another organization, uh, just real quick, in the auditory cortex is based on uh, columns again. We had ocular dominance columns or rapidly and uh, slowly adapting columns in the somatosensory system. Uh, the columnar organization in primary auditory cortex is uh, what's called EE or EI. So it receives input from excitatory input from one ear and excitatory input from the other ear, or excitatory input from one ear and inhibitory input from the other ear. And that's kind of the columnar organization. And then it uses that to do its really complicated computations, which uh, we don't really have uh, a complete understanding of just uh, yet. Okay, so know that there is a columnar organization uh, with um, excitatory input from both ears and excitatory inhi inhibitory input uh, from, the two, from one ear and the other. Okay, um, here's another summary, and everything goes into layer four again from the uh, thalamocortical fibers. Just a little thing. Okay, so here, you know, you will encounter patients who have hearing loss for a variety of reasons, right? So. It is quite dis disabling to an individual not to hear, to participate in uh, uh, social interactions, in, in work, watching TV, you know, all of this. And uh, there are many reasons why, why an individual can have hearing loss. There are genetic causes, uh, complications at birth, infectious diseases, chronic ear infections, uh, and like a lot of noise, uh, exposure to chronic loud noise, often, uh, uh, within an, an, a work environment or so, or a, a leisure environment, um, and uh, also aging. There's, there, there's, a, there's also uh, age-related decrease in hearing. So a lot of this is avoidable, so that's where you come in. Um, 
And you know, there are a bunch of devices like hearing implants, hearing aids, cochlear implants. Uh, that's where the technology now is getting smaller and smaller and, and can process much, much more. So there will actually be quite a lot of development in that area. Um, and, 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 and you can treat your patients with these devices. Okay, so hearing loss can be divided into acquired and age-related. Acquired is what the name says. It's like damage to hair cells because of loud noise uh, or uh, damage to the ossicles because of a, an ear infection or uh, you know something gets poked in your ear, you have a ruptured tympanic membrane, right? That's acquired. And then age-related is as part of the normal aging process. Uh, you have unilateral and bilateral, right? Uh, that means unilateral in this case has nothing to do with the brain, but it is related to if you can hear only in one ear, you can't hear in one ear or in both ears, right? And then again, this distinction between peripheral and central uh, that we talked about. And then what is most important is the distinction between conductive and uh, sensory neural. And we'll talk about this in, in, in excruciating detail. Okay. So, presbycusis here is the age-related hearing loss. Uh, I'll show you some, some uh, audiograms later, but it's a symmetrical, progressive, bilateral hearing loss that affects frequencies more, certain frequencies, higher frequencies first. Okay? Um, so when you do your neurological auditory function, right, uh, the goal is to see, hey, is this conductive hearing loss or sensory neural loss or a mixture of the two? That's like the, the big key. Um, and for that, you, you have your tuning fork. Can I see who brought a tuning fork today? Can you just raise your hand? Yeah, I think we have plenty. Okay. So um, then, of course, the severity is important to determine how much that person is impaired. Uh, and then the an anatomy, you have to define that so you can infer about the ideology and potential treatment. Okay. So, you have the ex so there's this distinction here between uh, conductive hearing loss and sensory neural hearing loss. Conductive hearing loss affects everything up to the oval window. That's kind of the mechanical part of the air conduction through the canal and through the ossicular chain. Now that's kind of all analog. Once you get to the, um, to the cochlea, then anything there becomes sensory neural. So it affects the hair cells, uh, the um, cranial nerve number eight, and so on. So the external uh, canal, if you have issues there, it's called otitis externa. Uh, you can have wax infections or a foreign body locked in there. Uh, then you have the tympanic membrane right here. Uh, you can have trauma there through perforation, pleading, uh, or an infection. And very often, if you have a perforation, then it allows also uh, for bacteria to get into the uh, middle ear. Uh, and then you have the ossicular chain, um, which, uh, you know, once you, you get that in the inner ear, you call it otitis media. 
You can have inflammation and infection there, bowel trauma, which is uh, when you go diving and uh, you go up too fast or you don't equalize well, you get uh, the pressure changes there uh, can, can cause uh, issues uh, in, in, in your middle ear. And then you also have a condition called osteosclerosis, which is a uh, congenital malformation of the stapes from birth. Um, and then you can have also, in terms of sensory neural loss, uh, you know, within the internal ear, uh, called otitis eterna. You can have inflammation based on viral infections, meningitis. Uh, you can have trauma in there and Meniere's disease, which we'll talk about in another class. Okay, so how do, you, how do you test if somebody can hear or not? I mean, the first thing is, can the person hear at all, right? So very simple, you have them close their eyes and you just see, hey, can you hear this? And you, um, I mean, you ask them to close one ear and then um, you, you start uh, rubbing your hands, right? Or their hair. And uh, usually most people can hear that. If they can, then you know, you, uh, you know there's a serious issue. And then you do the same on the other ear, um, one at a time. Right, so, but then you also have the tuning fork tests, which we'll discuss today, Weber's and Rinna, to uh, dissociate between conductive and sensory neural hearing loss. And then you have fancy electronic stuff, uh, which uh, is done in an audio lab uh, or an audio clinic. You do an audiogram where you test sensory hearing thresholds at different frequencies. And um, that gives you an idea about some diseases where there's a selective frequency loss, not just an overall volume loss, uh, but a uh, specific frequency loss, like in uh, age-related hearing problems. And then, you know, that goes up to, like, some, some uh, reports come back with speech and word recognition, uh, which is a bit more complex. It involves the, uh, the processing of high-frequency sounds of human speech, um, they, they're kind of important. They can also uh, indicate cortical damage in language areas that, around the auditory cortex and the lateral aspect of the superior temporal gyrus and the superior temporal sulcus up there. That's the areas that produce speech, turn speech sounds into something that our brain understands. So that's important because obviously uh, they can impair a person quite significantly. Okay. Okay, so we have sensory hearing loss, uh, sensory neurohearing loss, everything after the oval window, and everything before is called conductive hearing loss. So damage to any of these structures before is conductive hearing loss. Here's your tuning fork test, uh, your tuning fork. It's 512 hertz. It's a C. And what you do is with it, you, uh, you just hold it by the stem, right? And then you hit it somewhere. Uh, like, let's say, like your bone here. Some people use the, the um, knee. You know, whatever you prefer. Um, and you can also kind of pinch those, and then they start vibrating, right? Uh, okay. Let's look at a video here. 
The tuning fork tests are useful in assessing hearing loss. This video shows how to perform Rene and Weber's tests. These tests are performed using a 512 Hertz tuning fork. The tuning fork can be activated by flicking it between your fingers or by tapping the tuning fork on the knee It is important to explain the test clearly to the patient. Um, so you're going to hear a buzzing. I want you to tell me which position it is louder in. So position A. This tests air conduction. Or position B. Bone conduction is tested by placing the base of the tuning fork on any bony area surrounding the ear. Position A. When testing air conduction, the tines of the tuning fork should not be held parallel to the external auditioniatus. Instead, they should be held perpendicular to the external auditioniatus and about one centimeter from it. Again, it is important to explain the test clearly to the patient. So can you tell me whether you hear the sound loudest in your left ear, your right ear, or whether you can hear it in the middle? Place the base of the tuning fork in the midline. The middle. Okay. So, what happened there? So, first there's Rinna's test, right? That's the first test they performed in that video. Uh, it does test bone conduction of the ear and air conduction, right? What does that mean? So, let's say if you put a tuning fork here, on, on your bone behind the ear. What happens there is that the vibration actually go through the bone and uh, stimulate the fluid or vibrate, let me, uh, yeah, get the fluid within the cochlea to vibrate and thereby causing uh, firing of the hair cells there. So it's a transduction through the bone, right? Now, and we call that bone conduction, BC. Now, the usual way is through air conduction, right? That when you place the tuning fork just outside the ear canal. And now, crucially here, what you get is an amplification of the sound through the ossicular chain, right? That we talked about. And then you have the most efficient type of um, conduction that you have. So, what do you think? Right? Okay. So, um, what's correct here is B. So, the conduction through the air will be louder. The same stimulus, the same type of vibration through the air is louder because our system is just built for this, right? It's evolutionary adapted. It has put in an amplification mechanism there. Versus, if you go through the bone, it gets there, but it's not the optimal pathway. Right? So always uh, the normal response is air conduction is bigger than bone conduction in terms of loudness perception. Right? Now, assuming this, what will an, a foreign object in the outer ear, like a blockage with earwax, what will that cause? 
A diminishment in what? In the bone conduction or the air conduction? Right? Like earwax or toilet paper. Right? Okay. Yeah, very clear. It will reduce air conductions. I think some people just click randomly. <laughs> right? Is that what's going on? Hmm. Okay. So now. This is a test. We don't have so much time, unfortunately. I, try, I was hoping we could do this. But if you, if you go home uh, and, and don't have anything to do, what you could do is just, just, just <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> How likely is that? <laughs> Who needs sleep? <laughs> um, so do this. Just to figure this out, um, it, it's actually quite a, interesting to notice this yourself. You have to go through it once. Um, so uh, you, you basically, um, what you do is you, you do this, this procedure, air conduction, bone conduction, uh, first without uh, toilet paper in your ear, then with toilet paper in your ear, and see how this actually changes your, your overall perception. All right? Okay, so Rinne's test, you ask the patient uh, which sound is louder. Or, I mean, there are different ways to do it. Uh, what, what, what I think works best is if you hit the tuning fork, you do bone conduction first, right? And then you wait till you don't hear it anymore. And then you put it in front of your ear canal, and then, hey, you still hear it. That means air conduction is louder than bone conduction. I think that's the best, you get the best effect with that, right? And that is because... Um, you know, uh, it, air conduction is just the more adaptive way. So a normal Rinne test is air conduction is bigger than bone conduction. That means you don't have uh, uh, conductive hearing loss, right? The whole pathway is clear, is as, it's ex, as expected. Now, they call this Rinne positive um, for some historical reason, and Hinne Negative is, is actually a positive clinical finding but, um, uh, of conductive hearing loss, but, you know, can you do? So, um, the way you can remember this, Rinne under the pinna kind of thing. This is the pinna, right, versus Weber. Rinne under the pinna, you know, works for some. Okay, so now Weber's test. Um, is a bit more complicated. So you do bone conduction only, right? You, you strike the tuning fork, put it really firmly against their for, 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 um, forehead, or I think what actually elicits the biggest uh, um, kind of effects is you can also place it on the teeth like that, right? You still have bone conduction. <laughs> See them, please. Okay, so now there's bone conduction going to both cochlea immediately, right? And then you also have masking of that sound from, you know, like say your, your air conduction is masked, right, from that sound. So um, now imagine you have damage to, um, to the... Uh, 
to the right uh, to the to sensory neural structures like the nerve structures on your on your uh, uh, right ear, right? Will this sound louder, as loud, or not as loud than without damage? So will damage in your right ear with damage, will this test sound louder or not as loud as without damage? Does that make sense? Right? Yeah. Right? It won't sound as loud because the air, the conduction goes to the, nerve, to the cochlea and then might get transduced, but then the nerve cannot transmit. So you don't hear it so well on the affected ear. What this means is Weber lateralizes away from sensory hearing loss. Lateralizes in this case means it's louder away from the sensory hearing loss. Sensory hearing loss makes Weber uh, less loud in the affected sensory neuro. Right? So, right? So, now it gets a bit more tricky and, 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 and it's not quite clear. There, there are different explanations why this happens, but it happens. So, if the ear canal is blocked and there's, uh, no, uh, there's no ambient noise, uh, it actually sounds louder in there for some reason. Anyway, what this does clinically is uh, that Weber lateralizes, so it's louder on the side of conductive hearing loss, right? So what you end up with, you, so you can test this yourself as well, following these instructions at home. So what you can te test, your, uh, so what, what, is, what happens with um, Weber's test, um, the, normal, the normal response is equally loud in both ears. So you ask, which, which, is it loud in, in one ear or in the other, and the, or, or, or is it the same in both? And the, per, uh, the patient says, in both, that's the normal response. Um, if the patient has sensory neural hearing loss here, the sound lateralizes to the intact ear, right? So it's louder in the intact ear. Um, and if, if you have conductive hearing loss, the sound uh, lateralizes to the affected side. So I had a few tests here, but I'll, I'll make those available. You can take them separately. So don't do them now. But what I want to show you is just a summary of this. So I'll, I'll post those and you can do them at home. Uh, what I put together here is these slides, which basically summarizes the interpretation. So with this, you can diagnose sen uh, Rinne and Weber testing, right? Usually people do Weber first to see if there's any issue, if it lateralizes, and then you don't know with Weber alone if it's sensory neural loss in one ear or bone conduct uh, uh, conductive hearing loss in the other. So you have to follow up with um, uh, with, with, um, with RINA testing, right, to kind of confirm uh, if there's actually conductive hearing loss, right? Okay, uh, there's another table here that you can follow. Some people like tables. And uh, then there's another table here that also includes mixed 
more complicated things where you have both sensory neural loss and conductive hearing loss at the same time. Uh, you will do this in the small groups, so it will become much more important, uh, clear there, but you can follow these uh, things here. So then finally, the last slide, so audiograms we talked about, these are done in an isolated auditory booth in a lab where you have uh, headphones on and um, your, the, your sensory thresholds for auditory stimuli are tested at different frequencies. So you basically said, I, you, you have a button in your hand and you, you say, okay, I can hear it, I cannot hear it. And then the sound volumes are uh, varied. You know? And then your threshold, by the time you, you know, kind of your, your auditory detection threshold is determined, you know, how good your hearing is at each different frequency. So this is a normal one. This is a, you know, you have the threshold here. The further you go down, the worse it is. Up here, oh, yep, thanks. Got it. So here, this is the threshold. So further down means bad. Here, this is normal. And this goes in frequency up from 125 to like 8,000 here. Right? And then, for example, this gentleman here on his left ear did fine. On his right ear, he has a very selective uh, hearing loss in a particular frequency, in a high frequency. Uh, this, this is likely from like a hunting incident. Like the gentleman is probably right-handed, put his rifle there, you know, uh, on the, his right ear was right there, getting all the pressure waves in there. The left ear faced the other way uh, and was shielded through the, the cranium, right? So this, this is very typical for that. Uh, here, the, here you have uh, presbycusis, which is the age-related uh, frequency loss. So that happens bilateral, symmetrical, and it happens in higher frequencies first before it comes to low frequencies, right? And then uh, you can you know, further differentiate those. So the, the audiogram is something uh, that is that uh, you know for which you have to have technical resources, uh, and you can do follow up request those, um, and they give you some a little bit more information. But I think the most important one is uh, really the tuning fork tests that you get those down uh, that you can uh, see. Hey, there's somebody with uh, with a with a middle ear infection versus a sensory neural hearing loss. Uh, and that affects your treatment options. And you learn this, you do this on the ASCIIs, and uh, yeah, wish you all the best. Thank you very much. Hey, let me just save this.